everyone and welcome to Making the Scene. My name is Greg Sadashny. I am a, a, a host this week. I have been asked nicely by uh, Eric Sippel to come on and, uh, and do the hosting duties because Eric himself has a scene that he wants to um, break down and talk about. Eric, how are you, sir? I'm doing really good today. How about you? I'm doing good. Thank you for uh, for having me on. Kind of doing uh doing the uh, the pinch hitting this week. I really appreciate it. I, I the longer I was recording this season, the more jealous I got of everyone getting <laughs> to talk about scenes. So when I had the idea of a scene that I wanted to do, I figured I had to get someone. And and our talk was was so good on Butch Cassidy that right. there was really no one else I wanted to come on. So thank right. you. I feel like um, I'm kind of disappointed that you didn't pick a half an hour sequence to talk about. But I'm disappointed in myself, too. I realized afterwards <laughs> that I really should have picked something way, way chunkier, but I figure I'll get you back later. Next season of Making the Scene is all is just going to be uh, uh, acts of movies. Yes. So if you want to pick the middle act, <laughs> we'll talk about it for an hour. <laughs> Um, you know, Eric, I, I know that you might have uh, touched on this a little bit, um, but do the listeners of Making the Scene know anything about you? Like, you usually always put the spotlight on the guests. Do have you have you done your own intro before? Not really. No, I you know I, I usually give my my Twitter account at the end and my blog name at the end of the show, but I've right. never really done a. A guest intro for myself now. Right. So to, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so I am a computer programmer by day and a web developer. I make websites and a author by night. I've got one novel out right now called Broken Magic. I am, as when you hear this, we I will have a new anthology out um, that I co-edited with Arlo J Wiley and Paul Smith called Delhi Counter of Justice, which is about a superhero who hangs up the cape to open a deli. So that should be out as we speak. So you should check that out as well. Otherwise, um, yeah, I've made a couple of short films, and I, otherwise, just you know, I do, I do the I do the writing thing in whatever venue I can find. So that's right on, man. that's me. And why did you do Making the Scene? Why? What pushed you into becoming a podcaster? Mostly, I want to you know I want to become a better a better filmmaker. Is was the real impetus. I I want to get back to making short films again. And with writing, I've started to feel like you know I'm getting a grip on the craft, right? Like the technical details of it. And with film, I was really feeling a deficit in understanding the the nitty gritty of things the the effect of lighting and editing and how how movies achieve the effects that they do and i was getting frustrated with the fact that every time i thought about learning that i just wasn't putting the effort in so this was sort of my attempt to trick myself into doing the hard work of breaking down scenes like i should have been doing anyways and i figured i just put the onus on a bunch of other people to bring their scenes on it's really the simple film school really Yes, it's and and really it's all for me. I'm actually the student. Everyone else is just like guest professors to come in and help me out. And but yeah, that's why I did it. And I found that a lot of people were sort of in the same boat. So you know, it's been that's that's kind of how it was born. Absolutely. Um, so you picked a doozy of a scene from uh, what many p- people would consider a modern classic. Can we talk a little bit about what we're going to be talking about today? Yeah, yeah. Let's do it. Let's talk. So about- so you picked. 
uh, Magnolia, P.T. Anderson's Magnolia from 1999. Am I correct? Correct. Yes, okay. 1999. And uh, what scene did you did you choose today? So I chose the probably the most divisive scene of the movie when people talk about whether they like it or not. Eventually, the Reign of Frogs scene gets brought up because it's right. definitely it's a weird scene that comes completely out of left field narratively which i mean which is the point but i find that a lot of people who are, are like well i like the movie but damn that rain of frogs scene and i feel like if you're going to talk about magnolia there's a lot of really great scenes but it's this is the scene to understand because it's clear that this is paul pt anderson's crux this is the this is the the scene that the movie was working up towards so it's not just a throwaway so understanding magnolia really comes down to understanding the scene i think Mm-hmm. I like that. Uh, it, how did you how did you approach this scene when you were thinking about it? Is it uh, are you uh, approaching it thematically? Are you approaching it from a from a filmmaking aspect? All of them. How how are you doing this? A little a little bit of both. I I came in thinking about the thematic aspect because that's the that's the part that people get um, mired in. But as I was watching it, I found that there's some really canny. Um, cinematic choices being done in the scene just to make the scene effective in and of itself if you pull it out of the context of the film the the pacing of it and the way it gets into things and the the just overall the feel of the scene is really masterful you could just watch this scene and you get a really a really it's in a lot of ways it's unlike a lot of what pt anderson has done otherwise it's very it's very nearly a mini horror movie and i think it's interesting to pick apart how he does that and how he leads into it and back out of it at the end. So I really looped around on the technical aspects the second and third time through the scene, and and so I, I really ended up at coming at it from both ends. Right. Um, I've noticed with uh, making this scene and being on the other episode and kind of listening to the show that um, obviously we're going to be talking about this kind of little microcosm, this th- this thing that people focus on. But everything needs a context. And I think really the, the frog scene, the frog rain scene, whatever you want to call it, is really uh, – it, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a kickoff of, uh, of basically the end of the movie and it, it needs – context can we talk about where it falls in the movie and, and kind of why it exists before we get into the scene breakdown yeah I, i'd love to i mean it, it you know it is in a lot of ways it's the climax of the movie it's the you know it, as in as such as much a as a you know a movie about 15 characters intersecting can have a normal film climax but this is <laughs> you know there is there are a handful where it falls in the movie is you know there have been a handful of emotional climaxes where we we learn the last bits of backstory uh, and people reunite you. We have Tom Cruise reuniting Tom Cruise's character reuniting with his father. And um, we learn about um, a Gator. I can't think of his first name, the Jimmy Gator, Jimmy yeah. Gator. Uh, we find out why his daughter dislikes him, why there's such a rift between them because he molested her and the wife finds that out. And, and the kid, the quiz kid has run away and, and the new, the old quiz kid is about to rob a store. So we get all of these kind of big emotional beats right, right before it. And then right in the middle of these big emotional beats, the frogs start falling. Right. It, it, it's a, it's a massive interruption of the, of what you think of as the normal 
emotional climax of the movie, right? We're in the middle of the emotional climax of the movie, in come the frogs. Right. There's a a lot of tension building. I mean, like, when people think of um, Boogie Nights, his previous film, um, Boogie Nights has this kind of uh, (coughs) fantasy structure, this building of uh, someone uh, uh, getting into this world that he isn't familiar with, the pornography industry, and kind of his, his fantasy kind of becoming a nightmare. And it's this build to this nightmare and there's a montage in there that's very similar in um in tension releasing uh but uh, magnolia is a bit different it's almost like the intersecting of these lives for the first two hours and 45 minutes is kind of getting all the pieces in line all this kind of um uh, where the tension was building in boogie nights the tension is almost already there in magnolia all of these uh people's lives are being affected and and most of them negatively um in a way that they that you know it's almost like you know it's their uh, their head is about to go underwater and it's this constant building 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 for two hours and 45 minutes and if anything i mean whether you understand it or not um yeah like you say the climax uh being this this uh this frog rain scene whether you you like it or not it is a a, a tension release type uh scene would you agree with that yeah i mean it's it's this incredibly bizarre catharsis in the middle of everything else going on, you know, as where everyone's life over the course of this day and over the course of the movie are been falling apart the whole time. And right. the frog rain becomes the strangest catharsis possible. You know, right, right in the middle of everyone's lives kind of hitting the wall. Everything that they've been doing, we have Julianne Moore's character has tried to commit suicide and people are crying and everyone right. is falling apart. And then, and then here comes, and the thing I love about the frog rain scene is that it's not just a rain of frogs. There are, there are character moments that happen directly as a result of right. the frog. It, it actually, it doesn't just intrude on their lives. It, it re-angles a lot of the stories because right. of its suddenness. So it, it's a, it's a, profound effect on the ending of the movie right. uh, these, these frogs falling there is uh there are some comments i want to make about the type of catharsis this is but we'll wait till the end to really talk about that let's get right into the scene breakdown if you have nothing else to cover yeah, is let's that do fine it. Let's do it, yeah. cool let's uh let's start with this so um we're basically talking about just about you know we're doing this obviously off of N- ntsc region one dvd so obviously your uh your time codes might be a little bit off but we're generally talking about the scene starting at 245.44 to about 252.16, something like that. There's a, it's a whole chapter on the DVD or Blu-ray, and uh, we're generally talking about that frog rain scene, that whole one from, from first frog falling <laughs> to uh, basically um, the death of a character. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a hard cut right at the end of that. So if you're if you're not sure where it ends, it, it ends right when it goes to the next title card. The movie is broken up occasionally into weather related title cards. <laughs> yeah. Um and that one there's the it just cuts to a title card at that point. So you get a nice clean break at the end of this. Absolutely. Well, why don't you take the ball, Eric, and and let's you know, lead me down this path that we're talking about. So the where we get into this scene and, and you know, one thing to remember about Magnolia is that in in a, in a way, it's basically one long montage sequence. It's almost a two hour and 45 minute montage sequence. Um, everything cuts into the next. Everything leads into the next. We, we have some long scenes, but everything, it's all about balancing these characters' stories and, and cutting between them. And the, and the frog rain scene is no different, but we pick up into it 
as uh, John C. Riley's character, and I cannot believe for as many times as they've seen these movies, half these characters' names just completely blank. I know, and the problem also for me is that I hadn't seen it in many years. But like uh, for for something so dense like this, yeah, I I, I pick up a couple names. I know uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman is Phil Parma. I know uh, you know Tom Cruise is is Jack or Frank. Uh, yeah, I yeah. can't. John C. Riley. Yeah, John C. Riley. I looked it up. John C. Riley is Officer Jim Curring, and I'll, I'll be honest, I don't think I ever knew that last name. Jim. Yeah. Jim's remember, remembered, but the last name, no. But um, you know, he's driving down the road, coming back from his weird date with Melora <laughs> Walters' character uh, Claudia, and he sees um, Quiz Kid Donnie Smith climbing the wall of the of the building. And what what I love, about the, the the important bit of the context here is that. Um, William H. Macy's character has just has previously robbed his old employer's store and then suddenly has this pang of guilt and decides to go back, but he's broken the key. So he's trying to find another way into the building. So the cop actually catches him as he's trying to return the money to the building. So he sees him. He's like, oh, I gotta gotta be the cop again, turns around. And just as he turns around, boom, a frog hits the, the, um, the windshield. And this starts off the... The chain of the beginning, this is you kind of break the frog rain into into maybe two sections. In the first section, unlike a lot, the, like a lot of the other movies where it always feels like things are sequential, we jump back to the beginning of the reign of frogs a number of times right. early on, which is one of the reasons it kind of feels like a horror film to me. Because what we get is we get the first frog hits the windshield and John C. Riley stops and freaks out, and then we get kind of another one hits, and then he looks up out of the window. And we see a frog coming down from the sky. And and this is one of those areas where the technical details really hit me. Because Mm. what I love is, so the first thing we get is the jolt, right? Like we just get a bang and we don't know what it is. And that's the first piece of information we get. And then we get a second frog hitting. And now we're sure it's frogs hitting his car. And then finally, we get a shot of the frog falling out of the sky. So we realize it's raining frogs. And I loved the clarity of the presentation of that information. You know, it's, it's. It's peace and then peace and then peace, and it's built to maintain tension, but it also makes sure that at the end of that tension build, it gives us the requisite information, which is, here comes a frog from the sky, holy shit, it's raining frogs. Exactly. And and then they can just start falling. Exactly. And also kind of um, for for something that is um, generally a a movie that you would expect to be uh, very quiet, talky scenes, that we're finally getting some some action. We're going into some action little little segments, and... um, I was kind of uh, I was kind of thrown by CGI. Did did it throw you the first time that you saw that that this was such a um, a CGI laden scene? It's it's atypical for for PT Anderson, especially at this time period. Yeah, well, it is. I mean, I think I think the CGI is very well it, handled. Yeah, uh-huh. um, and and for the most part, what I what I like about what he's doing is that there's it's almost always practical frogs. Up yeah. close, we get yeah. you know we get practical frogs. They're obviously dropping because there's a, a particular bounce. I mean, they look like rubber frogs and not real frogs, but right. um, they, they they look very rubber in the way that they bounce. But then there's there is an awful lot of CGI because there's just no other way to have yeah, frogs raining massively down from the sky. But exactly. it is. I'm trying to think if there's another if he. I mean, I, I haven't seen the master, so but I'm I'm not sure if there's any scene it's, he's done which is as cgi laden as the yeah, scene no it's very su- subtle and i mean obviously this this 
thing that's uh, that you just can't handle in, in a in a practical sense. I mean, if he was like Kurosawa, Kurosawa would have insisted that they use <laughs> real frogs. That they would they would raise the frogs from birth from tadpole. <laughs> they would they would put together about two million frogs and then they would kill them as they drop them from hundred feet uh, ahead. But uh, you know, many people would say P.T. Anderson is not Kurosawa. So. <laughs> But no, you're right. You're right. It is. It is subtle, and it's probably also uh, his his most uh, his most CGI laden uh, scene that I can think of that that pops into my mind. I might be wrong. And it's very heavy. I mean, it's you know, it's it's and and in many different ways. It's not just the rain of frogs when we see the frogs, but there's a lot of frog shadows that happen. It, there's right. a lot of variation of technique as to how he shows the frogs are falling, which is one of the things that makes this scene so effective. Right. Um, well, I'm glad you said that because that kind of bleeds into Melora Walter's apartment, the yes. next scene. Yeah, and, th- and this next scene is actually really brilliant for me because I actually – this is one of those cases where I overwatch a scene and I'm counting things. Um, <laughs> yeah. the, you get the – we cut to her apartment and, and there's a curtain behind her that's sort of backlit and first we get one – Frog falls, and she turns around and looks, and then whatever, turns back and snorts snorts some more cocaine. And Mm -hmm. then two frogs fall, and she turns around again. And then she turns back, and she's looking in the reflection of the TV, and three frogs fall, which is what finally gets her to get up. Like, the frogs Uh just increment each time until the suddenly she pulls the curtain back, and a million frogs start falling, and she jumps back screaming and pulls the curtain off. Which is the probably the most pure one of the most pure horror scene moments of the right. thing. Like that whole build up is just a pure horror horror right. movie build up. You're 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 opening the curtain to the pandemonium. It's it's yeah. so it's classic. It's very classic. Yeah, and I love that. It's a, it's such a movie moment. Like it's a little affected, yeah. but I love it because she actually because she yanks back the curtain as she falls backwards and screams, and it's just yeah. it's just a little bit affected, but I but it really works in that in that moment, and I. Melora Walters is so good in this movie, and that scene really, like, that that scene is paced so wonderfully that there's no dialogue, but it just keeps, you know, frog falls, she looks back, there's this great moment where she looks, like, kind of backwards over her shoulders, like, she just, her head goes straight backwards. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so, but in that case, we get primarily frogs, frog, frog shadows falling past the I um. I do like um, movies that that use reflections, but not from things that we typically think of reflections, like like mirrors or anything like that. But uh, I generally love like that's that shot on the TV screen is so fantastic. There's this very subtle move in, um, uh, you know. P.T. Anderson is known so much for kind of his dynamic. Uh, dollying and 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 moving in and and kind of zooming in and another instance that we're going to see in this particular uh, a montage. But man, that scene on the TV screen and and coming from the fact that you just did Signs recently with Ken yes. Edwards, another movie that has TV screen reflections. I I, I love that shot uh, in Laura Walters' uh, apartment. It's it's great and it, you know it's one of those scenes where you get you know like I said a variation of the technique of how to reveal. Mm-hmm. what's going on which is another reason i love it that he's it doesn't feel like it's desperate but he clearly from scene to scene shows us different ways of right. getting into it um and then we go from that is is jimmy gator the next scene no the the next one is uh philip seymour hoffman in the house yes um 
And we're see- and I love that we're finally, you know, the first two scenes we're having basically uh, gasps. We're having these characters that just can't fathom what they're seeing. And uh, <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman is almost the the uh, the speaker for the audience. He's yes. the, the chorus, and he just says, "How are there frogs falling from the sky?" <laughs> <laughs> it's it's such a great. I love that moment because it's so underplayed. It's almost lost under the noise of the yeah of the frogs falling. Um, the cut from from Melora Walters' apartment to um, Philip Seymour Hoffman is great because there's there's some great sound design, jarring sound design work in the scene. And it goes from very, very loud frogs to, and it's just a hard cut to the next scene where the yeah. sound just drops out and it's silent again. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of that in the scene where we get, you know, we go from chaos to not chaos right. in, in purposefully jarring ways. And it's, Well, it's also, yeah, it's acting like, you know, the, the storm is moving as the clouds are moving in. So each pe- person based on where they're located in Los Angeles or whatever is, uh, you know, they're, they're getting the beginnings of the storm. So you cut to this character and it's quiet, but then it's, the storm is building again. And by the time Philip Seymour Hoffman says his line and we cut outside to the pool, which is like straight out of a sci-fi movie it reminded me something out of gremlins just like there's some steam rising it's a lit pool and just like this this complete you know uh uh uh, rain torrential downpour of uh of frogs all over the place hitting the uh hitting the jumping board and everything (laughs) that is such a great shot that's what i was trying to think of what that scene reminded me of and it's gremlins you're absolutely correct i knew there was some sci-fi horror movie that that was just like a straight like visceral hit yeah. on and I just couldn't place it but you're right it's, yeah. it's totally gremlins um and and what's what's really um what's really great about that shot and there's a lot of shots like this is that it's that there are these weird moments of really attractive beauty in this scene as as the gruesomeness of the frogs falling because the frogs are gruesome yeah. like there's blood they they kind of hit it's they're not it's not a it's not a clean frog rain you know and yeah. but there but moments like that which are just just absolutely beautiful and yeah. weirdly attractive, even though horrible things are happening. And I'm, I'm a absolutely. big fan of that. Absolutely. And then we go into this scene with uh, kind of this this uh, stationary camera that's on the hood of a car between two cars that are parked next to each other. And we see a, a uh, another car who we don't know is the driver yet, uh, swerving all over the place, you know, kind of running over these these frogs and coming right into camera, hitting uh, the two cars and uh, jolting the camera physically up. I mean, it's it really is kind of like this thing is coming straight for you. If it was in 3D, it would, you would be like <laughs> your head would fl- fly back, you know? But, yeah. And, and oh, sorry, one second. Are you there, Greg? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Okay. Um, my my thing cut out for a second. Um, yeah. And when I and it goes right from that to one of my absolute favorite shots. We realize it's it's Claudia's mother, and there's this Paul Thomas Anderson zooms are obviously classic right. for him. That's that's his thing. He loves um, zooms and push-ins and things like that. And we get a great push-in on her as she's screaming yeah. as the as that shot. I love. That's one of my favorite shots in the in the entire sequence. It's just yeah. it's great. And, and I mean. I mean, P.T. Anderson is constantly kind of like criticized for how Scorsese-esque he is. And I think that, you know, he has made 
his style, his own as his movies have gone on. But this this Dolly push in that is really on um, spotlight is really being used quite a bit in this movie, even more than than Boogie Nights. Um, And you've seen this for two hours and 45 minutes. There's a lot of this kind of very um, precise camera movement and you finally see this kind of move in on the car and while she's screaming it is it is a very um classic almost uh like invasion of the body snatchers type type shot um i really really like that yeah yeah same it's a it's a it's a great shot and um and it's cool because now again we're sort of getting into the variation of technique we've watched the frog rain start a number of times yeah and now this time we're just right in the middle of it we go right from the frogs in the pool right to someone wrecking their car yeah. And screaming about it, and I, 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 I like that it that it does that. You know, I like, I like that, and that's one of the one of the things that's really effective about the movie as a whole. And and it, it's interesting to talk about this scene because while the while it is out of left field in a lot of ways, stylistically it's not that different. The way it's cutting between scenes, the way it it um, mirrors and and then breaks from the structure of previous scenes um, is really very very akin to the rest of the film, and right. and that's one like that. Right. And then we basically, you know, after a car crash, where else can you go with it? It seems like the next scene has to be uh, even more ramped up action. And we probably get the most uh, kind of uh, visually stunning and stimulating of the of the action, quote unquote, scenes of of this movie. This movie is such a a heavy talking uh, scene. There's very little, I would say, in, in terms of action. But we have we do have a, a a car crash and then after that we have an ambulance that's just getting pelted and destroyed like the siren the um the lights is get, are getting destroyed the mirrors on the car on the uh, on the ambulance and it's just dripping with frog blood <laughs> you know what's really great about that the entrance to the ambulance scene is that it mimics, you know, when we've seen storms like this where the, the rain doesn't just doesn't start in drips. It just is like a wall of rain yeah. hitting. Yeah. And that's exactly yes. what happens. The, the 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 ambulance is driving and then there's just this wall of frog rain yeah. that just sweeps over it. And the ambulance twists and turns and and we get the, it's a shot they use in the trailer. I remember, you know, I actually remember seeing this this the trailer for this movie in the theater. Uh-huh. And I, I'm blanking on what movie I saw it in front of, but I, I was so excited because I loved Boogie Nights so much when I saw it, and I remember this was one of the one of the trailer shots was um, when the when the ambulance flips to the side and the camera kind of stays where it is and it looks like Julianne Moore and all the people are are flying right. to the side instead of right. flying down. Yeah, uh, it's a really really amazing. It looks shot. like. It looks like uh, they're they're in space, man. It's, it yeah. looks like they're being turned over and everything is just floating. And I do love that scene because, I mean, after all this pandemonium and all this destruction, this fucking, like, vehicle has been destroyed into kind of like, you know, just this this floating chunk of metal. And it just slides. Is it is it in the lane to go into the hospital? Yeah, it just slides right up to the emergency room it's door. It's amazing. It's amazing. And I do like that also. I do like that. That you said those sheets of rain because you know it it started not it, the the sequence started uh, as it was raining 
earlier in the movie and you just see this the sheets of rain just stop and it kind of goes into a new weather report and a new part of the movie and then here the rain starts up again in these sheets and it's it's approaching this approaching cloud this this wall of of uh of frog rain is coming so i love that you said that uh the first thing that you see that overhead shot of the ambulance that that approaching doom is coming <laughs> yes i really love that you said that and you know there's there's something about this this particular moment because this is the only time we see julianne's more julianne moore's character in the, right. in the frog rain really and it says that this is a part of why i i love this movie so much is that 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 moment is not killing julianne moore she survives the end of the movie you know the the ambulance gets her to the emergency room it's it's a it's a harrowing moment, but it doesn't need to go nihilistic. This frog rain is not. In fact, I don't think this frog rain results in any real damage to anyone. You know, it's 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 well, an intrusion. But well, I I might have a problem with that. Okay. We're gonna get to it. Okay, okay, but you know, but we don't get. You know, this would be easy to be like here, and this is why I think this scene works so well because it'd be easy to say, oh, here's this crazy moment and someone dies. Right. Um, in fact, you know, I think about a movie like The Ice Storm, which yes. people really like. And I actually really, the at the end of that movie tuned me out where, like, there's this bizarre lightning yeah. strike or whatever that suddenly kills the, the kid. And, and I, that tuned me out. It was just, it's it feels like a desperate move to get uh, tragedy. The the act of God, you know, the, the kind of, yeah, I understand what you mean. Whereas this, the act of God is just, it's completely different and it's actually... It's very hard to tell what the act is intending to do. In fact, it's almost impossible yeah. to discern because it does different things in different places. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I think the scene works so well. And that Julianne Moore scene is a great example because it would be easy and lazy to have that result in her death. Absolutely. But, but it doesn't. It's just, it's just kind of a beautiful visual scene. It's just part of the opera that is Magnolia. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. That is, it is exactly how I would think of it as an opera. Absolutely. There's this, this uh, circumstance that's that's happening around them and it's not something that's necessarily uh judging them i like that i like that um probably the the one that's maybe i guess you could make a case that it's the least ambiguous but it's also kind of an ambiguous shot about where it leaves the characters the next one with philip baker hall is jimmy gator and uh obviously he's gotten to this point where he's going to shoot himself in the head with his gun um his life is in shambles he um in so many words kind of admitted to molesting his daughter to uh to his wife and uh so claudia's mother is uh, so jimmy gator is claudia's father and Claudia's mother, the one that we have been talking about, the one that uh, uh, crashed the car, and she's going to come up again in this montage. Uh, she has left uh, Jimmy Gator in a in kind of a drunken fit almost, and uh, Jimmy Gator has really nothing left. He's got he's got his gun and he's ready to shoot himself in the head. Yeah, he's dying of cancer as it is, and now this this awful re- reality of what of who he is has come out, and he's about to commit suicide yeah and and then we get yet another this this i love the scene because it's filled with classic shots and this actually might be the most pt anderson series (laughs) of shots that we get but we get this we get this shot of the frog falling slowly from the sky 
in an over in an over the shoulder shot by the way yes. i really like that yes and then the frog comes through directly through a skylight basically a little skylight it's like si- it's like six square inches it's like yes. the smallest skylight and then and then we get this this wonderful series of of pt anderson shots this heavy this stab zoom onto <laughs> onto him as he takes the shot but the frog hits the gun and then he falls over, and then we get these extreme close-ups of smoke coming out of the the outlets where the gunshot actually hit. Well, it oh, it hits the TV. It, it hits the TV, and it shorts out the right. It hits the TV. He's knocked on the floor. The uh, there's electrical shorts in the wire, and then in the it shows in the electrical socket, and uh, we even see uh, a little spark on the insulation around the uh, um, the socket, and then we see smoke coming out of the electrical socket. Um, I don't think, I think this is the last time we see Philip Baker Hall in the movie, correct? It, it is. And you know, I've always wondered about those shots of the smoke coming out. Is it meant, are we intended to I assume think, that the, the house burns down because of this? I think, I think so because he is knocked out and I didn't notice it before. Actually, I've seen this movie quite a bit and I don't know if I ever put that together i just thought oh it shorted it out by uh the bullet going into the tv but there is a noticeable spark and little bit of flame on this insulation and that smoke coming out of the electrical socket i think yeah this is going to cause a a house fire that's you know it's funny i had never i had never read it that way until again you know we're watching this and it's like well he takes the time to show that shot yeah and and pt anderson is not a you know, he, he's careful with his oh, yeah. with what he shows. Oh yeah, and especially in this scene, which is really you know, all these shots are conveying something, and 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 he takes a couple of seconds to show. I mean, he, come, he cuts back to it twice. That's really the thing. Right. We we see the outside of the socket, and then we cut away, and then we cut back kind of inside the 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 electrical box. Right. To see those those flames sort of starting, and yeah, we just never. That's something I wonder about. Was there? I wonder if there was a, a resolution to that that was cut. Maybe, maybe. But I mean, as it stands right now, if we're leaving this character uh, unconscious, he was knocked out um, and leaving him with with smoke coming out of the electrical socket. I I do not have uh, uh, happy thoughts about how it transpired. Yes. Yes. Um, And then we go from that into um, finally (laughs) – uh, John C. Riley's character Jim yeah, gets t- comes mm-hmm. comes drives madly driving his car into a gas <laughs> Swer- swerving all over the place. Yeah, um, which which catches Donnie Smith's um, attention, and we get yet another wonderful series of shots where he look he sees the sort of wall of frogs coming at him and looks right. up, and we get this frog hitting him <laughs> in the face. I realized something this time. When, again, I was kind of like watching closely the shots, the shot structure here. You know, he looks up, the frog comes down, it hits his face, he falls. What I didn't realize until this time is that he falls down and we get this wide shot of him falling onto the ground. Yeah. He hits the ground and his head bounces. Yeah. And actually we cut in on his face on the second hit. Like, right. it comes back down. And I don't think I had ever realized that he bounces Yeah. when he hits the ground and <laughs> smashes his face twice on the cement. Right. Um, and I mean, for, for those who, you know, need a, a frame of reference, I mean, obviously Donnie Smith, uh, he's a, he's a man with love, love to give. And, uh, he, he spent most of the, uh, movie with this aspiration of getting corrective oral surgery and getting, uh, getting braces. And, uh, he's more than a couple times, especially from his, uh, boss who he has a fight with. Um, you know, it, it, more than a couple times it said, Donnie, you don't need braces. 
Um, but in this scene, obviously, he smashes the front of his teeth, and he's uh, he's going to need oral corrective surgery now. Which is one of the great, you know, there's there's ambiguous effects that the frogs have on people, and right. very and very specific effects. And this is one of the moments where it feels like the intervention. <laughs> Um, helping him, you know, like yeah. this is this is a boon. The frog rain actually helps Donnie <laughs> in this moment. In a weird, even though it results in him smashing his teeth right off the ground, right. Uh, and uh, and Riley also, you know, Riley's gone through this thing where he's, you know, he's trying to find someone who uh, committed a murder earlier in the movie. Um, he has also lost his gun in a rainstorm. He was being shot at by uh, by the person who was probably the perpetrator in the murder. Um, he lost his gun. And uh, he's kind of gone through this kind of emasculating portion of the movie where he's not sure of himself as a cop or even as a man. Um, I mean, it's connected a bit with uh with claudia and kind of his date with her and all that stuff that there there seems to be something that can can save him you know we talk about the uh the story uh the 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 song that keeps coming up uh, can you save me but um i think that he's finally able to be a hero uh if only for a little bit and that's that's him running over and helping uh donnie smith under the awning of the of the gas station, pulling him over from from being destroyed by uh, by frog rain. And in fact, you know, there's there's a lot of context that really helps this this moment because we also get stuff after you know throughout the movie, John C. Riley's character is narrating his life as if yes. he's on cops. Yeah. Um, you know, he's constantly talking about what he's doing. You know, like he's talking to a camera, even though he isn't. And there's a little bit at the end of this, right, when he – as he's helping Donnie – actually, he, he lets Donnie into the building to return the money and yeah. doesn't arrest him. So um, even though he's caught by this, he, he takes pity on on Donnie. And he's giving this little monologue about how some people just need forgiven and some and some people don't go, need to go to jail. And making mm-hmm. that – just making that call is the hardest part of his job. Right. And, you know, it, it reinforces this thing about um, Jim as a character, which I love, is that – It'd be easy, and in most movies, this kind of, like, overly moral um, character would prove to be very self-righteous and terrible, and we're waiting for—we're actually waiting for him to judge Claudia the entire movie, and every piece of information we get is that he is honestly this good. Yeah. He is an—he is honestly a nice guy, and he's kind of figuring out what that really means over the course of this movie, just how much patience— and, and, you know, caring can, does he have the show? And every time he's presented with it, he, he steps up. Right. Every time he has a moment where it'd be easy for him to be judgmental, he yeah. doesn't. And that's this is sort of one of those moments that really shows it. Like you said, he, he runs over, he, he gets um, Donnie out of the frog rain, and, and it ultimately leads to him sort of forgiving Donnie. Well, I'm glad that you said that because he's also he, – his goodness, his, his innocence – He's not a, a judgmental or or um, he, he is a naive person, but I think that that's part of his his charm. That's part of what makes him good. I mean, um, we talk about the frog brain not being a, uh, a judgmental thing, um, that it is a catharsis, but it's not necessarily judging the people for their sins or whatever. But um, I do like it's out, kind of outside the scope of your um of your scene of your montage but he does get his gun back in probably the biggest act of god you know he doesn't get it back from a kid or he doesn't get it back from you know uh the police doing a canvassing search and they found it 
it just falls out of the air, just like the frogs. Yes. Yeah, it just it's sort of like the last the last bit of of the this act of God is here's here's, here's your gun. gun. Here's a gun back. Here's a gun back. And, yeah. and it is. It's it, you know, it's one of those things that you, you know, it, it's 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 sort of, it sort of feels like the reward for him. You yeah. know, he's kind of come through, you know, tr- navigating worlds that he is just completely not a part of and and not being a dick, even though yeah. it'd be easy. It would have been easy to be awful to Claudia as he realizes how many problems she yeah. has and he doesn't. It'd be easy to be terrible to Donnie after this horrible day he's had. He's had a, an absolutely horrendous day. Yeah. And he still has this this um this this caring to give Donnie. Yeah. But but yeah. you know, but and it's great because we don't get a lot of that in the scene, but it's kinda hard to talk about what's going on in this without without that. Right. Um but And I do like, you know, he's he's a mainstay in uh in uh PT Anderson's company of actors, but John C. Riley is probably one of these people that um, he doesn't seem like he's got ulterior motives ever. He seems like such an innocent and down-to-earth person. I mean, I think that's what Anderson loves about him. And I, even as he moves into more dramatic work or even moving into kind of the Will Ferrell, um, uh, Adam McKay uh, group of comedy actors, uh, he constantly comes back, you know, when I think of him, he, he doesn't seem like a, a, a conniving sly person. Whenever I think of John C. Riley in in a position in a in a um, in a role, I always think of him as kind of just he's a good guy. He he can be a dummy sometimes, but he's a good good guy. Yeah, he he's he's amazing at pulling off that sort of um, you know slightly dim. And you said often naive, mm-hmm. um, but genuinely okay guy, and making it feel like a real character. Yeah. Which is actually not an easy character to pull off, frankly. Oh no. And, not at and, all. and he's the master at it, which is why Philip which is why P. T. Anderson uses him so often in, right. in ver- and, and to give him credit in variations on that role. We've seen a, a we see a number of variations on him playing this character throughout right. P. T. Anderson's work, but um this is probably this is I think one of the only times he gets to be a main character, actually. Yeah. Um. And but yeah. So so I, I do I love the Donnie the Donnie Smith bit and and it's another it's another one of those like eep moments. You know, it's a real. Mm-hmm. I always want to say a punch to the face, which is actually literally a punch <laughs> to the face. Um. And, and do we go from here to um to Claudia's mother? Is that? Yes, Claudia's mom going into uh, Claudia's apartment. Yeah. I. This is another set of shots. I. Oh God, I just love this sequence. I love you know as as um Miss Gator passes the window the the window shatters yeah from the frogs and the frogs are falling and then we right. cut into um claudia's apartment and this is another like straight horror shot she kind of like crawls out of the shadows right in fear which is like the, which is just a great a great shot and this is another moment of the frogs so the frogs have directly affected things in some cases in this case they kind of act as a catalyst um you know claudia is was getting to the point where she needed someone she needed to be able to let herself be comforted yeah. Um, and it's it's only the terror of the frogs. This scene would have gone very different had her mom showed up to talk about the situation with Alex. <laughs> yeah. You know, this would have been a very different reunion. But because they're both terrified, 
it's right. a purely emotional coming together. And, and like right. I said, it, it acts as a catalyst to them coming together in right. the way that without this reign of frogs, they wouldn't have had. Yeah, the natural disaster aspect of it. You know, it's a disaster movie um, for a lot of this montage, but it does completely paint what would be um, like we've seen for two hours and 45 minutes, uh, talky scenes, talky scenes of, of people interacting and kind of what their relationships are. Um, this this natural disaster, if it can be natural, um, is is pushing them into a very different, a very weird, a very awkward, a very uh, abnormal uh, way of of reconnecting. The, the whole movie, we've been watching characters living out their normal lives. I mean, it's it's at a point where things are falling apart for them. But, you know, it is the, the momentum of their own lives that's carrying through the movie until this point when suddenly something completely outside their lives steps in. Yeah. So, you know, we've been watching two hours and 45 minutes of them destroying their own lives, essentially. Yeah. And and this is, this is we're going to see what the effect is when they're finally sort of kicked out of what their normal reactions would be. Right. Um, we get that. And in this scene, maybe the most audacious ballsy shot that P.T. Anderson has ever done, I would say. It's very, very possible. It's up there, top three. And um, you want to you wanna talk about it? Which you want to say what it is? What are we talking about? What, which? There's this push in to oh, the, yes, yes, to yes, the yes. painting. And, and P.T. Anderson has, a, basically, you don't see this in, in most cinema. They don't show you this. Yeah, I think that I'm reading this correctly. It is an in-camera, no cut, no edit cut lens switch from you know a, a wide lens to a macro lens um, on this little statement at the bottom of this painting, which really is out of place. It's out of place on the painting, and it's audacious that it's the most distinct message. It's the the author. Uh, sending a message to the viewer and it just says this in this little uh, black type on this little white uh, rectangle it says but it did happen I, I, I love I, you know I was trying to figure out how you achieved the shock and I think uh, you're right I, I didn't think about them doing an in-camera lens switch yeah but that's exactly what it what it looks like and it is because it, like it's jarring it almost feels like a cut but it doesn't you know it zooms right. in and then suddenly we're extremely close on the and, and you know P.T. Anderson loves his extreme close-ups, and in fact, if you if you hear him on commentaries, he, especially the commentary for Boogie Nights, he talks about him kind of fa- himself falling in love with extreme close-ups because you can get one thing in focus, yeah, and only one thing. You know, you can get the record needle, but not the arm, right? Um, and this is a case of him going extreme close-up on that statement. And uh, you know, and if, if this hadn't been set up as weird intrusions throughout the rest of the movie, other kinds of things and di- and the discussion of weird intrusions, this wouldn't work. But it's, I feel like, you know, one thing we didn't mention, Greg, and I think it's worth saying that even though this scene is weird, we get this frog rain, it's been preceded by a musical number. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, yeah, all the what? characters singing along to that, uh, what's her name? Uh, Amy Mann, Why Amy Up. Mann. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a, you know, there's a five-minute musical scene where they're all singing. And and so this is not the first bizarre thing. Yeah. And the, and the first moment where we've kind of broken the fourth wall, basically. Right. You know, right. The, the movie, the, the craft of the movie has become the movie itself once before in this. And mm-hmm. this is another case where, like, here's just this message embedded in this 
in this thing. And you right. can almost read it as, you know, with all the talk of coincidences, that this is just one of those coincidences. Right. You know, I, I she think... happens to have a, a painting that has this on there. Right. I got to say, um, there's a couple different, more than a couple different reads of what it is that did happen. So it says, but it did happen. What what registers to you of happening? What is it that it is referring to? I, I think, you know, for me, I read it as sort of an overall statement on the on the, the fact that this rain of frogs happened and had this particular effect on all these people's lives, yeah. that these intersections were happening. And I think maybe it's commenting on the entire set of coincidences in the movie. Right. Maybe, you know, but I think I kind of see it as a very as a very broad and general statement that we've reached the end of this story and maybe we'd be saying this is ridiculous, but right. but no, but it did happen. That's that's how I read it this time. But I remember reading reviews at the time that I saw this in the theater, and I remember reading it this way the first time I saw it in the theater. I feel like but it did happen is almost a comment on Claudia and her mother and kind of the disbelief of her child, her childhood molestation. Oh, that's a really interesting read. Yeah, that. But it did happen, you know. Like there, if there's any doubt of this, of this, um, this umbrella that she, you know, has this, uh, this difference, this, um, this chasm between her and her father. Um, and he says in a previous scene, she, uh, uh, Claudia's mom asks, you know, why don't, why doesn't Claudia want to talk to you? Why is Claudia weird around you? And, uh, and, and Jimmy Gator says, I think that she thinks that I molested her as a child. And the mother asks, well, did you? And he's like, I can't remember. So to Jimmy Gator, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I think he says, I can't remember. Yeah, he does. Um, to Jimmy Gator, in his head, this cloud of history or, or alcoholism or anything, or even his own wanting to, to lie to his wife or wanting to forget this major sin, this horrible thing that he did, he can't even remember. But this, this message makes sure that it's distinctly known. But yes, it did happen. I like that. I had never thought about that. Yeah. That's great. That's yeah. great. But then we go into yet another little weird moment. Uh, who, is the, who is this little boy? I can't remember his name. Stanley. 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 Exactly. Stanley in the library. And he, you know, it, we talk about what is, um, what is shown and what is on audio and what is selected to be in this montage because, you know, we have signs, but it happened. We have uh, Phil Parma saying how are uh, fo- frogs falling from the sky. Um, and, you know, obviously uh, P.T. Anderson is the writer of this movie, so he's making the dialogue and everything. But Stanley is again acting just like Phil Parma as a as a as a choir as a chorus to the story that's unfolding and and I love this shot you know it's a it's a slow zoom in on uh, or a slow move in I think on uh, on Stanley 
as he's watching just the the shadows, this torrential downpour of of, uh, of frogs coming in through the window, and he's looking out uh, past the past the camera at this window, and he says, "This happens. Uh, some, this, this is something something that happens. This is something that happens. Yeah, which is which is a callback to what really sets up the movie. This the, the ability for the movie to do this, which is the five or six minute opening scene yeah which is narrated by ricky J, where he goes through these bizarre stories of coincidence and chance and a part of the end of his monologue is saying no don't just say this is something that happens yeah um so we get the call back and that you know without that 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 scene is absolutely there to to justify the later weird stuff in the movie you know that's absolutely the reason that that's there and it it kind of gives us the setup but here we get a direct callback of Stanley again, sort of, we're kind of breaking the fourth wall of the movie. Yeah. Um, with Stanley repeating Ricky Jay's line, yeah. essentially from the beginning of the film. I mean, Stanley himself has gone through uh, an interesting um, arc in the movie. I mean, he seems to have a pretty uh, obsessive and domineering father. Um, he has a situation where he's usually the smartest person in the room. Um, he recognizes his genius, but also I think that he has a real yearning to be a regular kid. Um, I, I definitely constantly see throughout this movie that, you know, his his genius is a burden, his uh, his ability and kind of what people pat him on the back for and, and treat him so special for is a burden on him. It's his cross to bear. And there are lots of mirrorings in this movie and where you know, we see what happened to Donnie Smith in the end yeah. as an adult. And here we're getting what his childhood must have been mm-hmm. like. And and Stanley's had an absolutely horrible day, too. Yeah, everything is falling apart. And what I think is interesting about this scene with Stanley is that of all of them, he's comforted by the yeah. train of frogs. It's like after after a horrible day, and he's actually hiding in the library because he's run away from the quiz show, right? And gone back, I think, to his school library. And and this absolutely absurd moment is is a comfort to him. And they never really explain why. Well, um, he which, can't even he can't even explain it. He's the person that always has the answer in the room. But even he can't explain this completely absurd and unnatural thing. Do you think I that's think. why it's a comfort why? to him? Because it's it's something inexplainable and yeah. and random, and it's not yeah. just a fact. It's not just exactly. It's not some detail to be memorized. Exactly. You you cannot whether you are religious or scientific, a person of logic, uh, rationale. You can't explain that. And the only thing that he can do. As someone who who has memorized facts and history and uh, fucking songs and French and everything, he he does not he he could never come up with a a uh, explanation for it. And I think that I love that smile on his face. And and it goes into this beautiful slow motion shot as we see the shadow of frogs falling against the wall. Yeah, and, it's and so slow motion that you see every single one of them, you know, distinctly falling. Yeah, and it's one of those shots that you really didn't start seeing until modern times because I don't think that the ability to change the aperture properly existed until right. recently. I remember David Fincher talking about doing this in maybe Fight Club that there's yeah. like a basically a box that can control the frame rate and the aperture of the camera and and sync them as it goes from regular speed. Right to slow motion and that's what it does we have a regular speed shot that that eases well i i kind of i kind of wonder about this shot 
Because I don't know if it's um, it's true in camera. I wonder if the uh, if the frogs falling slowly is CGI. The, but I feel like the shot was slow motion too. I could be wrong about that. But yeah. you know, it's, it's also possible. Yeah. You know, this is one of those cases where it's possible to have shot high frame rate. Yeah. In the first place. Right. And done something different, but. I, I read, and I'll have to go back and watch it now, but I, I read it as one of those shots like in like in Fight Club, and I can't think of the specific shot, but right. that that eases from from f- fast speed into slow motion. But maybe right. it is. It might just well, be a trick. That's a really good point. I never thought about that. But even, you know, with the moving in on Stanley, like, uh, they could have shot a slow motion plate of him, you know, in slow motion, smiling and everything. I just feel like those, that, that um, the... Uh, superimposed um, frogs falling just seems a little too clear and digital to me. I don't well, know. Oh, no. The slow motion frog shadows are definitely digital. Okay. I'm sorry. Okay. I, yeah, let me take it back. The the slow motion CGI is absolutely slow motion, but I think the whole shot, the whole push yeah. in, because there's no cut. It just, right. no, it no, just no. pushes I, in. I, and I agree I think, with you. And I, so I think it's a, it's a combination of a shot going from full speed to a higher frame rate and thus slow motion. Yes. And yes. the CGI matching to that. Yes. Yes. Okay. We're in agreement. Though. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Those, those frogs are definitely, that's CGI. I was like, I was thinking, I mean, like, man, maybe he could, maybe again, maybe he's like Kurosawa and he had a billion frogs on set <laughs> and he was dropping them all each. But I mean, like it's so distinctly like the, the outline of each frog is so distinct. I'm like, but yeah, come on. Yeah, totally. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, and we're talking about like, you know, how this, how this uh, scene is kind of a relief of, of tension. And I think that the next scene with Tom Cruise and, and Jason Robards is another type of release. Yes, because we we come in at their you know we've already had um, T.J. Mackey's breakdown, mm-hmm. um, which is which I will say just as a sidebar is probably the best thing Tom Cruise has ever done. Yeah, maybe his absolute best moment of performance. It's beautiful yeah. and and potent, and he's already he's come out of his breakdown, and now you know his father's out because they've given him liquid morphine, yeah, um, to ease his way into death, and and that these we've already learned from the beginning of the movie that once this happens, he's probably gone. Right. Once they give him the liquid morphine, he he's not going to be a, a he's not going to be aware of what's going on. He'll slip in and out of consciousness. Um, so we assume that he's out at this point completely. Yeah. yeah. Um. And and they're they're quiet together, and we get a lot of really long shots yeah. in this scene of them of of Tom Cruise's face, Jason Robards' face, and then he opens his eyes. Yeah, um, which is another which I read as another of the effects of the frogs that the noise and din of the frogs is enough. Yes. To, for a brief moment to get let his father to let Earl wake up and then yeah. see each other. A moment of clarity. Yes, that one brief moment before he passes away. Right, um, and it's it's the other again. It's like one of the varying effects of the frog rain is it's just enough to make him come out of it. Right, you're seeing this kind of like, you know, he's he's. I don't know how to read his face. This is how I read it. I don't know if this is how everyone reads it, but I do see this relief that his son is there. Um, on Tom Cruise's face. He's still searching for a connection, but I do see it in in him looking at Jason Robards and and that you know I don't know what it's saying. Is it I'm here, Dad? I'm I'm, I'm here. 
You know, you 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 caused you know a whole bunch of the, the ramifications and negativity in my life. But hey, I'm here at, at your at your deathbed, right next to you. And Jason Robards is you know he's he, there's a relief. There's a relief that his son is finally there. And I think that you know he was going in and out of consciousness. I don't know if that's really what uh, you know whether it it is a a deep seated thing that he wanted his son to be there to kind of like. Uh, clean the table before he uh, went off into the the next life or you know whatever you believe and expires um, but I do like that there is you know of all the tension of all the things that Phil Parma has uh, um, uh, exhibited in his scenes and kind of how how distraught he is about this kind of this melodrama this soap opera that's going on in this family's life and then of course the effects of Julianne Moore feel, feeling the guilt and, and kind of the love of Jason Robards and she can't ho- hold on to that um, that this soap opera that has transpired with Jason Robards is kind of turning into this thing where he can you know, finally relieve that tension on on his life and everyone else's life around him. Uh, you know, even though T.J. Mackey, uh, you know, very reluctantly came to this house and came to be there by his uh, his dying father's side, um, he kept saying, "Listen, Phil, you better be in there because I'm not going to help him. I'm not going to help him if he needs help." And he was so steadfast about that. And it's almost in this in this final moment, if Jason Robards said he needed help. I imagine that that Tom Cruise would have helped him. He's he's so broken down. He's destroyed kind of this very misogynistic, fucking big bald uh, um, uh, demeanor that he had throughout most of the movie. I think he's he's like a child again in this scene. Yes. Yeah. He's the, and the movie has been breaking him down throughout it. You know, we we see the turning point when he has his interview, and we and we learn a lot of the stuff about his past as it's thrown at him, and and the walls are already cracking for him. Yeah. At that point, and this is this is it. This is the the moment. Um. And you know, there's an interesting other layer, and this is one of those things that you don't. It's not the filmmaker, and it's not the film, but it just happens to be sort of its own coincidence of life that. This scene is a little tough to watch because this is right at the end of Jason Robards' life. He was yeah. he was not super well when when they shot this, I think, and I'm pretty sure this is his last movie. Yeah, um, and he died very very shortly after this film. Yeah, um, I, I whenever I think about this, and I think that it was on my mind throughout rewatching this, is how absurd and absolutely like I can't even fathom what that feels like to be an old person, an elderly person who makes his or her craft in acting and having to play someone who is an old person about to expire. Yeah. That's got to be that's that's right in your face. What you're tapping into if you want to talk about method, if you want to talk about, you know, any sort of acting style, it's really got to hit home that it's it's so close how do you play these emotions when it it uh, maybe it helps you maybe it helps you to to play it even better but man it's it's right in your face it's you know you're not Toshiro Mifune in in um I live in fear where he was what he was like 
30 or 40 and he was in 70 or 80 year old makeup you know he he's he is pretending he is tapping into what it feels to be like an old person uh who's going crazy in that movie but in jason robard's case he is right on the cusp yeah yeah it's it's very it's 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 so close you know and 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 you know it's hard to break down. He's already he's a fantastic actor, and it's not like he this is not a role he couldn't have played great otherwise. But you know you wonder you know what was there. Yeah. Um, but it is it's a, it's a it's actually tough to watch it because it, it it actually you know it really makes it impossible not to think about mortality. That you know not only is this character facing death, but you know the actor was you know he, he passed away very shortly, and and that's tough. You know it's kind of yeah. it's tough to it's tough to watch, but it's. It's sort of a it it it's a beautiful ending to what has been a really a really tortured story for these characters, right? Um, and and we go right from there into black into the next title card, right? And that's that's how our um our frog rain ends. It's yeah. It's it's a it's a really incredible sequence because it isn't doing one thing only, mm-hmm. which is why I'm a big fan of it. Um, you know, it it's especially talking about it with you, it it becomes it's really interesting that it has very um varied effects upon yeah. upon its characters and character relationships yeah and it's you know it is this this uh mission statement it really is this scene that kind of um uh sifts through this movie's tug of war with uh with chance with its questions of chance and and things that absolutely are are faded um I think that the scene really is, you know, we talked about this catharsis. I love that this scene is not a wake up, appreciate what you have, uh, like an it's a wonderful life type event. It isn't. It isn't a, you know, sober you up to what you have and appreciate it. It isn't. It is something that just happens and it's going to, whether it's a negative thing, which you could argue is what's going to happen to Philip Baker Hall to uh, to Jimmy Gator. Um, whether you want to read that as uh, you know, he he got he made his bed and he has to sleep in it. Um, he got what he deserved, or whether you know you see the the effects on on um, on Officer Jim on John C. Riley's character where he can finally be um, a hero and and Claudia she can finally I, I I mean it really does bleed into the ending that Claudia is finally going to have a man in her life that will be there no matter what and he doesn't want anything for her other than to to love her and be there for her um you know uh john c Riley. he's such a gentle character and and maybe that's the type of um you know father figure or that's the type of male that she needs in her life um so I like this scene. This scene is not about, you know, w- wake up, appreciate what you have. It's very much a, a cleansing, a release of tension. Um, it's not a weeding out of sin or good or evil. Everyone is affected in, in their own way. It's it's the introduction of chaos as opposed to the imposition of order on yeah. it. You know, usually those It's Wonderful Life things is sort of like, here, change your life, you know, do all these things. Whereas this is just what happens if ridiculous chaos hits your life at a moment when you're already falling apart. You know, you're exactly. already weak to it. 
and what gets thrown at it. Um, so, so I want to talk a little bit about the context of this in the in the movie. Uh, but before we do, I, I want to talk about one technical aspect sure. of this scene overall. Um, and overall in P.T. Anderson's film, which is his longtime collaborator, Robert Ellswit, who's the cinematographer of this movie. He's the director mm-hmm. of photography. And he, he actually, they've worked together on every single movie except The Master. Yeah. Every single one of his movies, all the way back to Heart 8, he's worked with Robert Ellswit. And I, mm-hmm. Robert Ellswit is one of my absolute favorite cinematographers. And I, I feel like he doesn't get quite enough attention um, as far as great cinematographers go. He does something that I'm... I, a huge fan of, and I feel like flies in the face of what modern cinematography has started doing, where we start to get images that are very monochrome. Mm-hmm. Robert Ellswick goes for a immense amount of color yeah. in his shots, and not just one color, but you know, varying colors. We get when John C. Riley's on the street, we have like the the white of the of the street lights. But we also have neon yeah. in the background. We yeah. have, and you know, we get um, the blue of the of the of the. Um, the lit pool as mm-hmm. we get it. We get the deep light in the house. We get the the backlit. Um, the, sorry, that, like in Philip Seymour Hoffman's house and in, in Earl Parcher's house, there's all this lighting all the way back. Yeah. In, in Claudia's apartment, we have the backlit um, curtain. And we right. get different versions of that throughout the movie. Uh, the, there's often, because our curtains are these sort of pieces of cloth. And right. a lot of times the way that is sort of a light source, you know, different from what you'd get without that, that thing. It's glowing right. almost. Right. And I'm... I just absolutely love Ellswit's photography. It's it's deep. It's col- It has beautiful color. It 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 doesn't feel desaturated. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just I I wish more cinematography looked like his. You know, I think that someone he's definitely in the vein of um of Deacons in terms yeah. of in terms of I think their aesthetic interests. Yeah. Um, he has this he has this vividness to it. I really do. It's it's uh it's the deepness of it that I yeah you don't see. Uh, on a on a very typical basis, he's a very well um, established and, and well educated. Um, you know, he, he I get yeah Hollywood cinematographer, but he runs this gamut of being. You know, he he kind of re reestablished what independent film could look like um, with the work that he did with P.T. Anderson. Yeah, yeah, and and. You know, it's it says something, and I want more filmmakers to go look at what a movie that isn't color graded into oblivion looks like. Yeah, yeah. Right. You know, it, it feels like the work that's being done is with, and I'm, this is not to say that digital color di- digital color manipulation is bad, but you know, it, you're you still are limited by what's in front of the camera. Right. You know, you have to light, you have to have a great image before you can manipulate it right. very well. Well, he's he's an experimental c- cinematographer. I mean, it is a shot that uh, that uh, P.T. Anderson probably came up with, but uh, Ellswood is the one who probably uh, made it happen. You know, uh, uh, changing to the lens in the middle of a of a of a push in. Yeah. You know? That's an experimental shot. That is not something that you see every day, and and even more so cutting in to any sort of uh, shot uh, with in camera practical things. I mean, you don't see that in modern cinema at all. No, and you know, I I asked a question on Twitter, and actually it was a result of me watching this about whether people preferred um, you know cinematography to edge towards the beautiful shot, regardless of of whether the light sources justify it or not, or whether they would rather see naturalism, yeah. you know, what it looks like. And Ellswit, like Deakins, is one of those cinematographers who somehow manages to do both. 
Yeah. You know, he manages to make these richly gorgeous images with yeah. what he's doing, but yet every bit of light feels justified somehow. Oh, absolutely, man. You talk about he, I think that I see that. I'm glad that you drew this comparison between he and um, and Deacons because I see that with Deacons' work constantly, even when he's working in uh, something like "Oh Brother, Where Art Thou," which was graded, but he was the intentional, the intentional part of it. He was involved with. He was involved with the the look of that, and and obviously um, in a, in a way that's formalistic but at the same time naturalistic where the light sources are coming from but he's also run the gamut when he goes to more high-end hollywood fair or, or high-end mainstream fair i mean skyfall there's scenes in there where everything is is um is uh, backlit and uh there's you know neon signs but everything is playing through from naturally where it would come would come from so like his approach to it and i see that with Ellswood, i see it with heart eight and all of these early pt anderson movies is that it's naturalistic in the way that uh, that uh, someone who's very uh um influential on uh, P.T. Anderson, Robert Altman, a lot of his movies, especially in the 70s, were. So I love that Ellswood is kind of polishing up, if it's possible, polishing up a, a naturalistic look that, uh, that obviously P.T. Anderson is trying to trying to tap back from the 70s. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, so something I feel like I should say about Magnolia, because, you know, you and I'm sure you get this too, Greg, you, you talk about movies enough and inevitably someone's going to ask you, what's your favorite movie? Like, right. you can't escape this question. And I don't know about you, but I feel like it's pretty much an impossible question to answer. It is. Um, it, you know, it's... So I decided a while ago that I wanted to have an answer because I was sick of the looks on people's faces when I refused to answer, mm-hmm. um, that I decided I needed an answer. And I decided in an answer that, that I thought... I decided on Magnolia as my answer because... Magnolia as a movie, I think most exemplifies the kind of storytelling that I love more than anything. It's, you know, there, there's a strong trend in important cinema and important writing that tends to go towards irony or tends to go towards very cloistered and closed off emotions. And for me, I've always responded to movies that are unafraid that, that aren't, that aren't, that don't need to shy away from emotions. And, and Anderson as a whole goes for big emotions. He loves big emotional moments, but Magnolia is just, it's just so exuberant about every emotion that it has. It's huge. It's all these, you go from scene to scene, like God, the Julianne Moore has this breakdown in, uh, in the pharmacy, um, in the middle of the movie where she just flips on the pharmacist because they're questioning her. And you have scene after scene like that in this movie where the, the emotions are just, they're so raw in the surface. There's no artifice in between you and the emotions. And yeah, so when I when I say Magnolia is my favorite movie, it's because Anderson. I think this is Anderson at his most unafraid. Yeah. He is. He is. You have to be fearless to make a movie like Magnolia. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. A, a movie that's that um, can can be criticized as being overwrought and and overlong. And uh, you know, if you're if you're going to <laughs> wade, if you're going to dip your toe into melodrama and uh and soap opera and um just uh, emotions on the surface characters just you know 
on the cusp of of uh, of change and catharsis and everything. If you're going to dip your toe into that pool, you know it's almost like P.T. Anderson said, "Fuck it, I'm just going to wade in that pool. Like I'm going <laughs> to jump, you know, I'm going to cannonball into that pool." And that's what Magnolia is. It is something that um, you you can you can criticize it, but you can uh, depending on the person. And it sounds like you're you're one of those people. Um, I, there's something really wonderful about uh, about that being on the surface, that being so accessible. Um, yeah, it's great, not subtle. You know, great art makes choices. You know, great art yeah. is great art is never going to be for everyone. There for every. You know, for every great effect that art has on someone, there's going to be someone who just can't connect to it because they're not right. someone who does it. And and Magnolia is a movie that commits to its choice. It yeah. absolutely commits to its choices. Yeah, and it's got some of the best acting yeah. of his of his whole career. You know, P.T. Anderson, like uh, <coughs> like uh, so many um, great directors that you that you kind of admire. You know, he. He rarely. I don't. I don't even think I can pick out a movie that doesn't have great performances. He is an actor's director through and through. I, I constantly go back to seeing kind of like um, the the scenes, the extras on on um, on Hard Eight, and seeing how many scenes he's he's done kind of his Sundance workshops, and he cares absolutely more about the performance than he does about the flashy cinema of it. I think the flashy cinema of it, his style and everything does come in when he's doing his job, when he realizes that now, you know, it's it's his time to to throw his ingredient into the soup. But like his number one thing, like the priority really is honing performance and what you see out of the performance that he gets and why i think actors tend to give often their career best roles with him you know they're actors who are doing their absolute top work with him is what he is asking them to do is almost a high wire act of emotion because there's there are big scenes with big monologues and this goes across his movies that requires so much trust on the part of the actor because you are going to be afraid that you're going to look like you're overacting yeah, acting yeah. like that you know Julianne Moore her breakdowns they could be overacting and, and I have to imagine that performing those you're worried yeah. that that you're going to come off as as ludicrous Yeah, and so you really need to trust your director and yeah. I think that one of the things that P.T. Anderson does is he gets these actors to trust them enough to just lay everything on the table Right. so you get moments like you know the the when Melora Walters and her mother come together and and are hugging and crying. Again, that's that is not a small emotional moment. They're screaming, they're crying, mm-hmm. and 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 it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like artifice. It feels like they're legitimately breaking down. Yeah, and and that's something that he really really pulls out of his actors, which is why you can have someone like Tom Cruise in a movie. And I up to this movie, I did not like Tom Cruise. Oh. I was, I am absolutely, and I am actually a little more of a Tom Cruise fan now, but I could not take Tom Cruise on film right. until this movie. And I did the most hard 180 possible <laughs> from, from his performance in the movie. So that's, that's how powerful the performances PT Anderson can. Well, get. it's, gr- it's great because I think that you see that with, um, the people that criticize Tom Cruise for for playing the same type of character, they also criticize Schwarzenegger for doing the same thing. They criticize him for for lack of range. They sometimes criticize him for being a Hollywood 
movie star and and kind of uh, criticize his his ability his talent. So I love that you know you have uh, Tom Cruise in a P.T. Anderson movie and he, and it blows you away. I love that my favorite Adam Sandler performance is in Punch Drunk Love. You know he does tap in. Anderson has a way of tapping in and finding uh, the performance in these actors that. Um, might make their their money and make their reputation doing a certain type of string of of uh, performances, a string of type, a certain type of movie, and everything. I mean, Tom Cruise, he does have range. Uh, Schwarzenegger, if you go look at his movies, it's easy to pigeonhole him too. But he has range too. He has acting range. Um, and and uh, obviously Adam Sandler. I mean, when you say Adam Sandler movie to people, they have a very distinct idea of what type of kind of sophomoric type uh, type really broad, loud performances he's turning in. But Jesus Christ, if if Punch Drunk Love isn't the exact antithesis of what an Adam Sandler movie is, I I don't know what else is. So I love that you say that about Tom Cruise. I think it is you know a a litmus test. I mean. It, he he's playing with um not a um not a character he's played before a, a simply like really misogynistic person but i think the sexiness and dangerous dangerousness and charm of tj mackey is something that tom cruise has made his career on so he starts in this movie kind of playing a new version of what a Tom Cruise character is, but where he goes with it is completely atypical. I don't think that you, that I've seen it uh, again since uh, since Magnolia. No, it's actually an inversion of type in the way that Watchmen is sort of a deconstruction of the superhero mythos. You know, you yeah. sort of lean yeah. into it and then rip it apart. Right. You know, we, get, we get the most ridiculous hyped up version of tom cruise masculinity when we meet him yeah and then we just blow that masculinity up until we get right. to this frog scene where he's quiet and 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 unsure right. with his with his dying father and right. and that's that's incredible so greg i have a question for you because when we were getting ready for this episode you said something to me and i really want to know what you what you meant you said that you found magnolia to be a tough nut to crack right and i'm curious what you meant by that and if you feel differently now I absolutely, absolutely feel differently. Talking about, you know, Magnolia is one of those movies that is, um, depending on how you want to approach it and how you want to critically analyze it, it is a movie that can give you a lot to talk about and debate, but gives you very few answers. And I think that the frog uh, scene is one of those scenes that gives you very few answers. If you're going to approach uh, Magnolia wondering what type of movie it is or what its message or meaning is or what can you boil it down to, especially when it comes to a spiritual meaning, since, I mean, so much of this movie is about chance and fate. I mean, it's it's impossible uh, that it's not going to bleed into uh, religiousness uh, or spirituality or whatever. So... That's what I meant by tough nut to crack because originally I thought that you were going to approach this frog scene from a very um, spiritual 
place. And that is where there's constant debate in me. I don't think that it gives you um, uh, answers in that way. I think that it's uh, not necessarily atheistic, but it's agnostic in the way that it uh, it gives comfort or where it uh, looks like it's damning the characters. I don't think that it's uh, easy to figure out. So that's what I meant from, from that standpoint. After talking to you about this, you know, I obviously know where you're approaching it from, and I'm glad that we're on the same page because it is something that I think I, I can uh, talk about and, and feel comfortable with because um, you're, you know, you're, you're approaching it as this moment that really is unexplainable, and the only way that we can define it is how it affects the characters in the scenes. We're not trying to define what the frog rain is. We're trying to. Define what the effects of it is. So that's what I meant. The tough nut to crack is that I thought we were going to talk an hour and a half about what the frog rain means, but we're we're not, which is good. I'm I'm so happy you didn't go down that road. Cool. <laughs> yeah. No. I I think you know what the the movie. I think is very clear with us what the frog rain is. I, I mean, not really clear with the, what, what it all it actually yeah. let me take that back. It's very clear with what it isn't. And at the right. movie, at the beginning of the movie, Ricky Jay tells us, this is not just a matter of chance. And yeah. that is as far as the movie will go. Yeah. That it is that whatever we are seeing is more than coincidence. There has to be more than just randomness to the universe, but that's yeah. it. That's all we get. Yep. You know, like what is this rain of frogs? I don't know. You know, but but it can't just be a coincidence. It can't just be one of those things, you know, and and which is, like you said, a very agnostic view. You know, we can't understand what this is, why it is. There isn't one clear effect of it. It's not it's not coming in and saving everyone. It's not coming in and damning everyone. It is chaotic. But boy, is it does it line up interestingly with where their lives are? Right. And it's got to be more than just chance. And I kind of love that that's where it, it leaves us, you know. So all you can do is analyze the effects it has because you don't yeah. know why. Yeah. So you just – you look at what happened because of it. And and I, I like that the movie is – the movie is very honest with us about what's going on in this. I think one of the reasons I'm always interested by people who feel betrayed by this reign of frogs is that I feel like the movie couldn't have shaken us harder yeah. to say that weird stuff is going <laughs> to happen. Absolutely. absolutely. So I, I like that the movie is just is like straight up, hey, we're going to really mess with you mm-hmm. on this. Just strap in and and take it. But but cool. I'm, I'm really glad to hear what 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 your thoughts were. Yeah, I, I I'm I'm very interested in what this movie means, what this scene means to the movie. You know, it's it's right. sort of the the access point on which the film turns. But but beyond that, you know, I don't I think if you had it, if you had anything close to an answer on what the frog rain was, this movie would be a thousand times less interesting. Yes. If it, yes. If it was upfront with any of that, I think that you wouldn't like, obviously if you're going to approach any sort of movie, it should be, especially since we're talking about melodrama and, and soap opera and, and performances, it should be its effects. It should be the effects on the characters. It shouldn't be trying to explain what the what the event was. You know, it's not a it's not a disaster movie. It's you know, leave that 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 question really isn't necessary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eric, thank you so much for letting me come on and and uh, and find out more about this scene for you and and host it and kind of direct it. Uh, you know, I, I appreciate always being a part of, um, of film discussions. I love it. 
Thank and thank you for coming on. Really, it was you know this is a, a scene that I always want to be able to talk about, and I've never really had a chance to discuss it in this much detail before. Even though it's you know one of my favorite movies and one of my favorite scenes, and and I really appreciate you getting me a chance to you know to really dig into it and and give your thoughts on this. So thank you so much. Hell yeah! Can I do a little plug action I, for I was the gonna, listener? I was going to demand that you did. Yes. <laughs> uh, I am on Twitter. My name is Mr. Greggles. M I S T E R G R E G G L E S. I have two podcasts I wanted to plug. Um, my regular podcast is the Debatable Podcast. Um, you can find us on iTunes and on Tumblr at debatablepodcast.tumblr.com. Uh, Eric has been on that show quite a few times, and uh, we always have a good talk. Um, definitely listen to that one. And then just recently, I started a show called All the Pieces Matter with my friend um, Fernando Madrigal, who's also been on Debatable quite a bit. Um, we talk about uh, The Wire, HBO's The Wire. So it's a podcast. Um, basically an overview of the show and we're doing two episodes of the show per we've done um, about three or four episodes at this point and I hope you'll come over and listen and maybe even watch the show along with us um, it's a it's a great rewatch a great retrospective podcast so um, we are also on iTunes all the pieces matter and we're on Tumblr at wirepod.tumblr.com and and there you can find all the uh, the um, connections to Facebook and Twitter and everything to follow us so yeah go check out those two uh, podcasts i'm really proud of them and uh yeah that's it great and um as for me uh, you can find me at salon it's s-a-a-l-o-n on twitter and the making the scene podcast is on my blog at s-a-a-l-o-n-m-u-y-o.com salon moyo or go on to itunes and subscribe to it and check out all the other great episodes and please go check out greg's debatable podcast and all the pieces matter he's doing fantastic work on both of them Thanks, Eric. I really appreciate it, man. No problem. Um, so, you want to take us out, Greg? How do I? How do I take you out? I just pretty much make it up as I go. So you can you can just say whatever you want. I I fumbled the out every single time, and I just want someone else to fumble the out. It's once. it's something something atypical. Okay, let me think. Um, please listen to making the scene. It's been so good so long. I mean, I've uh, there've only been two episodes so far, right, Eric? Yeah, yeah, they've been released so far. Yeah. And I got to say, it's uh, some of the best um, scene breakdown type critical analysis um, that I've seen. I, it's it's almost like the analysis of the scenes uh, tells you as much about the people who pick the scenes than it does, you know, about this particular scene in the movie. Recently, uh, they did, uh, Ken Edwards came on this podcast and talked about signs. And, uh, I, I learned, I learned as much about Ken as I did about that scene from signs. So it's interesting that, uh, that, uh, that Eric is doing this, that, ha- that having a guest on is kind of, uh, it's a, it's a learning experience in more than one way. It's not just, it's just not film school. It's something else so uh please keep listening to this show i really enjoy it so thank you so much eric keep listening to making the scene i will have a good one (laughs) 